Well, it pleases me to say, open your Bibles. We are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you want to go to verse or chapter 16, that's where we're going to be picking up today. Most of you know that I'm starting a brand new sermon series today. It's in the life of David. And I don't know if this is going to be a surprise to you or not, but I've pastored for a lot of years and I have never done an entire sermon series on just the life of David. I've been in and out of David now and again. Of course, he's an iconic figure, so obviously I'm going to be preaching about his life at some point. But this is the first time we're 12 weeks. We're going to just go from stem to stern and learn about the life of this important figure in uh, Old Testament uh, biblical history. Most of you know that David was the greatest king that uh, Israel ever knew. And his life is explained in First and Second Samuel. I want to give you just a little picture here, just as a highlight. For those of you who may have never read the book of First and Second Samuel before, there are three main characters in the book. Well, God's probably the main character, but three human characters in the book. And I have a little graphic here because uh, I want to explain the three characters. This is going to make some sense as we get into the life of David because two figures have already been on the scene by the time we get to chapter 16. The first massive figure is Samuel. He's the prophet. So he does not play the role of king. He doesn't lead the king, he, uh, lead the nation. He doesn't uh, take anybody into battle. He's not at the palace. Samuel is the prophet, and he speaks on behalf of God. And many of you know the story. He is born of a uh, woman that is barren. Her name is Hannah. And God shows great favor upon Hannah, and she says, because you've given me this son, I'm going to dedicate him to you. She drops him off at the temple, and God begins to speak to Samuel almost from the beginning. And so Samuel is this figure that is just this straight-ahead, no-swerving, no-nonsense guy, and he is just prolific within the book, and he does really great things on behalf of the nation and on behalf of God. You'll notice I made his his picture there, just a steady stream to the right. I mean, he's just, boom, straight ahead is this guy. On the other hand, we have two kings, the first king being Saul. And you notice his arc is a little bit smaller than David's because he's the first king, but he's a lesser king. And in fact, he's a king that fails in many, many ways. And so he's got an arc that, that goes up and then drops off. And really, his drop-off is very fast And although we won't really have a focus upon him, he continues to come up in our story because, well, David starts to eclipse about the time that Saul is on the decline. And there's David's ark. And David has the biggest ark really in the story because he's one of the main figures. And David has a really top up there where he's just ascending. And then there's this time in his life, many of you know about it, but it's a major sin that he commits. And as a result of that, God forgives David But his life after that time begins going down the backside, and down, down, down it goes. So we're going to be in the life of David. We're going to be picking up today in the first time that David is actually mentioned in the book, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And this is how we learn about David in the scriptures. It says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the guy that's from Bethlehem. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, 
I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, catch this, trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab. I love that name. If I had another son, his name might be Abinadab. Denise might have something to say about that. And he made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass before, and, and, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Uh, and he had all seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Lord, as we open your scriptures over the next 12 weeks about this man David, we are asking, Lord, that you open our eyes, open our hearts, open the very paths that you wish to take us in order that David and his story might be instructive to our lives. This great king of Israel, this great person that you loved so much because he was a man after your own heart, I pray, Lord, that we learn from him well. Teach us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Columbine, excuse me, Columbia University researcher Sheena Iger did a study and found that most people make 70 decisions a day. 70 decisions. In one year, you will make 25,500 decisions. And in the course of most lives that are about 70 years, you will make 1.8 million decisions. The famous 20th century philosopher Albert Camus says, life is the sum of your choices. And if he's right, then the sum of your life, that 1.8 decision, million decisions that you will make, are, is telling really the story of your very life. 
And as you might imagine, God goes about making decisions differently than we do. We are a contrast in the way that we make decisions compared to the way that God makes decisions. And we're going to talk about that today. Can I tell you one of the first decisions that Denise and I made in our early marriage? In fact, it was within the first three weeks of our marriage. We made a major decision, and we needed to buy a used car. So what did you do in 1998 if you needed to buy, excuse me, 1988, yeah, 1988, 88, <laughs> one of those years, one of those years back there, 88, yeah, that's right, we were in seminary in 90, that's right, okay, I'm piecing it all back together. What do you do in 1988, I got that right that time, uh, if you're ready to buy a car? Well, you do not look on the internet, you don't look on some smartphone, you go to the the want ads of the newspaper. And so we did that. We opened up the newspaper and we began to look for a used car. And the car that we came across, I've got a picture. This is not ours, but this was the model. And it was a 1984 Nissan Sentra. And we saw that car and went, wow, you know, it looks pretty utilitarian. There's nothing flashy about it, but it'll get us around. And so we went and got ready to test drive it, and we found out something about that car. Now, remember, we've been married exactly three weeks. We are very much in love, all right? So maybe it's clouding our, our minds in some ways, but we go to drive this car, and we find out that the car has got a great price because it's been in a flood. Most people would walk away at that point. But again, we're in love, and so everything's going to work out. You know, it's, it's rainbows and unicorns right now, so this is going to be great. It was owned by a son of a pastor, and the pastor assured us that this son had done impeccable work in getting this car from the flood and repairing it, and it was just, it was awesome. And we drove it, and seemingly there was really no problems at that point, uh, you know, but it's one of those regretful decisions of life that summer, we drove that car, and I swear it drove on three cylinders. And it only had four to start with, but it drove on three. And so we'd be going around town, and da, 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 you know, it was just, it was terrible. And then I have a little joke about that, because this was in California, 100-degree weather. I would turn the air conditioner off, because I just wanted to give more power to the car. And she would turn the air conditioner on and say, I'm hot, and so we, you know, we have this joke that's kind of like anytime we turn the air conditioner on in the summer, I'm hot, you know, so we say to each other. It's one of those decisions that you regret. It's one of those decisions in which you say, I can laugh about that now, but believe me, in 1988, I was not laughing. We had just made a terrible mistake and bought a car that, well, we probably never really should have. And I, I'm willing to bet that you, you may have some very similar, you know, you may have some similar stories about some time in your life where you made a decision that wasn't the best one. The passage today is all about the way that God makes decisions and the way that we make decisions. We're going to find out today in the passage, God is laser-like. He is on point Nothing is going to stand in the way of God's will or his agenda, the direction. This story just jumps off the pages with just God in action, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Contrast that with the people in this story today. They're mostly confused. 
most of them are unaware even of what's happening. God's doing his work, and they're just kind of standing by, you know, during the headlights, they don't really know what's happening. The analogy I have here is it's like a bright, sunny day, and God can see with great clarity in the whole story today. And it's like people are in a fog, and they can't even make out the details or the contours of the story or the people around them because this fog has overtaken them. And so today I want to learn about God's decision-making and compare it to our decision-making. The passage is going to help us to explore that. The first truth about God's decision-making is God exercises action over consuming emotion. Action over consuming emotion. The story opens up with Samuel filled with anguish. He's filled with sadness. He is in mourning. Why? Because he is sad over the state of Israel and the choice of Saul as the king. And in the previous chapter, we see Saul in all of his decline. Samuel goes to Saul, and God's given Saul a very simple instruction. He's told him, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. Go, take them to war, and put everybody to the sword. Includes all the people, all the animals. I know that sounds radical, but that's what God says. And here is Saul uh, going into battle, wins the battle, but Saul keeps the best of all the sheep for himself, and he keeps King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. So Samuel shows up after the battle, and he comes up to Saul and says, Ah, uh, Saul, what is that bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And Saul begins to make all kinds of excuses for why he didn't do what God asked him to do. And Saul right now is, again, this disobedient figure in the eyes of God. He's utterly failed as king. And as we pick up in chapter 16, Saul is there throwing a gigantic pity party. He's like, I am so sad. I mean, where has the nation come to? I have no idea what we're even going to do next. And he's just lamenting all of Saul's life. And he's just saying, I don't know what to do. Compare that with the very clear mind of God in this passage. We really pick up, again, in uh, verse 1. And this is what verse 1 says right here. How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. There is no hesitation with God. There's no lamenting with God. He's like, that's done. That's in the past. And he's four or five steps ahead of uh, Samuel in this story, and he's ready to go, and he is putting all of his, uh, his, his uh, will in motion before us. So many times we are filled with all kinds of emotion, and we are unable to make significant decisions because we are in that state of mourning or we're in that state of grief or we're in that state of, of just being torn up with emotion on the inside. Let me give you a good example of that. The disciples at Jesus' death are one of our best examples of that kind of anguish that had overtaken them. I mean, here is this king, and he, you know, we've got all of our future riding on him, and he's crucified. And up in smoke, just like that, goes all of our aspirations, all of our dreams, all of our hopes, and they are just licking their wounds, not sure what to do. All of the time, God working in the background, putting his will forward and raising Jesus from the dead. Three days later, that's what's going to happen. And so, again, God makes a way, even when we don't know what that way is, and oftentimes, when we are feeling that level of anguish, God is saying, 
trust me in the midst of that. There's something I'm doing you can't see, but trust me in the midst of that and give that piece of anguish over to me and ask me if I won't continue to lead you and to make decisions even in the midst of that kind of overwhelming emotion and overwhelming grief. All right. The second aspect of God's decision-making is action over specifically fear. I know that fear is an emotion. We just said God's always active over emotion. But specifically, God's also active over fear. And notice that Samuel hesitates. He's filled with fear, and he's got something to fear. Now, Samuel is not the kind of guy that's normally overthrowing the king. In fact, he's a fairly loyal guy. And Samuel is smart enough to know You know, if Saul finds out that I'm anointing a brand new king, that could be a problem for me. He will kill me. Guys that do that are known as guys that lose their heads. And so I'm not eager to go off and just anoint a brand new king. And so God says, guess what? I am going to give you something that, in essence, is an alibi. And so he says, take a heifer with you and go to make a sacrifice. Now, again, right now, Samuel's uh, concerns are justified. And let me explain to you why they're justified. It's best seen within a map. I have a map here of where Samuel lives and where he's going. Samuel is all the way up here at Ramah, which is his hometown. He's going to Bethlehem, where David's family lives and where he's going to anoint uh, Jesse lives with his sons, and David lives. He's going there. But notice, he has to pass through Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. And he's worried. He says, you know, if I'm walking through Gibeah, and somebody, maybe it's one of the Saul's soldiers, or maybe it's one of his servants. Hey, Sammy, where are you headed? You know, I, uh, 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 I, I don't want to lie. And so God says, you know what? You just take that heifer with you. You're making a sacrifice. Nobody's going to question you on that. You just go. And although that's not his real purpose, actually, in going to Bethlehem, it serves as kind of a cover story. It might surprise us that maybe God does that. But again, he's making, it a, making a way for Samuel to go and be obedient and do what he wants him to do. Now, there's another group of people in this story that are also fearful. So Samuel starts off as fearful. He kind of gets over that once he has the alibi. But there's another group of people that are also fearful in this story, and it's the leaders of Bethlehem. And notice, they come out of the city. They meet Samuel on the way in, and they're like trembling. They're trembling with fear. And they even say, "Uh, do you come in peace? Now, why would they feel that level of emotion about him? Can I take you back to chapter 15? And I told you that Samuel shows up with Saul, and Saul has kept alive all the animals, and he's kept alive King Agag. King Agag probably thought, you know, they captured me, but now it's good. I'm having conversations with Saul. You know, they're probably just going to put me in some kind of a cushy retirement. Samuel steps up to him, takes the sword off one of the soldiers, and bam, slices the guy right down to size and kills him right on the spot. Agag gone. I'm thinking that those people in Bethlehem are going, did you hear what happened with Samuel and Agag? And so we better ask a couple questions here. Samuel, are you coming in peace? Because if you're not coming in peace, we don't know what to do. And so they're, they're petrified. They're shaking like leaves. And Samuel assures them, yeah, I'm coming with peace, and we're going to have a sacrifice. I want you to participate with it. 
God is cognizant of what we all need. And if you're facing a major decision and you have some level of fear, God is ready to meet you in that. And perhaps he's going to provide you an alibi of some kind like he did with Samuel. More likely, he's going to just provide you with what you need. It's going to be people around you or information around you or just even the Holy Spirit that's just going to walk by your side and lead you on your way with that. God is gracious when we are filled with fear and oftentimes gives us what we need at that very moment. All right. The next thing I want you to see is the third piece of how God acts in decision-making. We're going to find out that God makes decisions and he prioritizes heart over appearance. Samuel has met the father, Jesse. He said, line all of your sons up. And at this point, Jesse has no idea why his sons are lining up. He only knows the prophets ask for that, so here they are. And Samuel is looking over that group, and he is saying, I am preparing which one I am going to anoint with oil and make the new king. And so he's preparing himself to look at these men and make that kind of judgment. Of course, he's listening to God. Let me give you an example of how I think that happens in modern day. Some of you follow the NFL draft that happens around every April of each year. And I have a picture here of, uh, I don't know, last year or year before's draft. I don't remember which one it was. But it is a gigantic spectacle of an event. And all of the players earlier before the draft is held go through an event called the Combine where they run and they throw, they pass, they catch, they block, they do all the things that are part of their role on the team and they all take statistics about how well they do all that. And then they show up at the NFL draft and there's all kinds of of songs and there's all kinds of drum roll and all kinds of anticipation and the next pick you know the second pick of the draft is you know and they they roll out the name and the guy comes on stage and they put the jersey on him and he's taking all kinds of photographs with it and of course you all know this the next thing that always happens is there's all kinds of now conjecture about whether or not that was a wise choice for that team at all so all the pundits start spinning around uh, whether or not that was a wise draft choice but I'm here to tell you it is the fastest it is, the, it is the strongest. You know, it's the meanest. It's all of the people that are the est that make it into the NFL draft and make it uh, onto an NFL team. It's no slouches. It's all the cream of the crop that make it. And, of course, it would be remiss if I didn't say, I know we lost yesterday, but we've got a very good draft of the Seahawks coming in April. Some of you are following that or just can't wait for that day because it just looks so inviting, and it could set the trajectory of the team for many years to come. Here's what I want you to hear. Samuel uh, steps forward, and he's got a horn like this. It's filled with oil. Samuel's job is to listen to God, and when God says, that's the guy, he's going to take this oil and pour it onto the head, anointing him. Why? Well, this is what you did with priests who are ready to serve in the temple. They were anointed with oil out of the horn like this. And this is what you did with kings, setting them aside for God's purposes. And so the oil is ready with Samuel, and Samuel sees the first son that comes in front. It's Eliab. And he looks at him and he says, Oh, Lord, this has got to be the one. Look at this tall and handsome figure. Oh, I could have no better choice. And he's ready to, ah! 
And God says, no, 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 not that one. Not that one. Okay, all right, pull it back. Eliab comes in front. Excuse me, uh, Abinadab comes in front, my favorite one. Abinadab comes in front. Oh, no, 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 not that one. Not that one. Okay, all right. Shammah comes in front. Oh, no, 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 not that one. Seven sons pass by, and none of them are the right choice. God gives Samuel one of the best pieces of truth, advice, that is in this chapter for sure, and maybe within all of really the book of 1 Samuel. Because this is what God says, and maybe you've heard this verse before. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, say it with me, heart. We're busy looking at the strongest, the fastest, the best appearing. And God says, that's not my litmus test. My litmus test is the heart. I'm looking for people who have a heart for me. I'm looking for people that are not playing games. They're not about themselves. They really, truly want to know me. And they want to be servants of mine. Those are the people that I'm going to move toward. It's kind of a surprise for us in some ways. I mean, God would take even the less, the less you know, flashy. Yeah, he really does. Because he loves that heart. And that's what he's willing to use. Here's what's also surprising for all of us. You know you never really can completely see somebody else's heart Heart's something that we actually get to kind of guard if we want to. We can kind of mask it. We can kind of make it look one way when actually it's some other way. And you know what? God is the one that's never fooled and is never tricked. God is able to completely see the heart. Even if we want to try to conceal it, can't be done. God sees it. I've got a picture for us that I hope can show you maybe in a visual way, what I mean by this. I've got a picture here of polarized, a polarized scene. Now, what is polarization? Polarization is something you do with glasses that allows the glare to be taken away. So on the left-hand side is a view of a pond that has no polarized sunglasses. On the right-hand side is the same pond with polarized glasses. And look what you can see in the water. I'm here to tell you, when I fly fish, I, if it's a sunny day, polarized sunglasses mandatory. Why? Because I can see into the water. I can actually see the fish. I know what I'm fishing for. And if you don't have polarized glasses, you're just kind of just dumbing along. This is God on the right. This is us on the left. And God is able to use the polarized sunglasses of, him, uh, of himself and able to see through the heart, and nothing can obscure it, and God is able to see what's really happening on the inside of us. That story continues, obviously. All the sons pass by, and none of them are fit, and so Samuel says to Jesse, is this all of them? I, you know, is there some, somebody else here? And Jesse says, didn't think you'd want to know this one, but yeah, I got the youngest son, He's so unimportant to the family, he's out tending the sheep. 
And Samuel says, we're waiting. Bring them on in. And can you believe it? I mean, I don't think that's a quick process. And so I think all the sons are around while they're waiting. He's, the sacrifice is ready to happen, and everybody's just standing around. I'd love to see, hear, heard the chit-chat for that one, right? Well, Samuel, what have you been doing lately? You know, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's pregnant at that moment because we're waiting for David to show up. And the story continues on, and that's where we're going to conclude today in David's anointing. God, fourthly, in the way that he makes decisions, God always prefers spirit over title. Let me explain to you what I mean. David passes in front of Samuel, and God says, that's the one. And Samuel takes the oil, boom, pours it out on David, flows down all over his head, even onto his shepherd's tunic, and he's just drenched with oil. He's probably even surprised at this moment because he doesn't even know what's going on. And it says that the spirit rushes upon David. It's not as if the spirit just like fell like a little dove on David. It rushed on David, and David is now given power by God to fulfill his will. He's a changed human being as a result of that. And notice what happens next. David is anointed, and now he is going to conduct life in this fashion in which he is the king, but not yet the king. So he didn't hold the title. I mean, God's anointed him, but guess what? There's still another king on the throne. And until that king's done, you're not the king yet. And so David goes through, I haven't counted the years, but I'm going to say a decade, because it feels like that in the story. David goes through like a decade of having the spirit upon him, doing God's will, but not having the title as king. He's got to wait for that. And there are people around Saul that are still serving Saul and want Saul's, you know, obviously him to go on for generations to come. And so they're holding on to the title. And David's over here with the spirit just pushing on all of his actions. And Saul's over here with, again, people wanting to hold on to the power that's just completely evaporating from him. As fast as the spirit's rushing on David, it's rushing away from Saul. In fact, the first line of the next section is, the spirit departed from Saul. This is David's role now. Is David's role is actually to soothe the king. He's going to, in the next section, play his harp in order to soothe the king because the king has an evil spirit that has now invaded him, that's upon him. And again, whole theology around all of that. I don't want to get into that, but anyway, that's where we stand. And so, again, the spirit's moving forward while the title is not yet in place. Pastor David Hansen writes of the need to rely upon the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He says, I live near a river. Fish live in it, and willowy river bottom is there, and mice and mountain lions are there. From my window, I watch bald eagles, ospreys, golden eagles, and hawks. These birds of prey ride the wind. It doesn't take much energy on their part. However, when, well, when geese fly by, they spend a whole lot of energy flapping their wings. But these birds of prey, they're not like that. They catch currents. Birds of prey seek thermals. They're columns of warm air that rise from the earth. They're filled with energy. 
And these birds glide on heated currents of air. A good thermal can lift them high into the sky without an even a single flap of their wings. And from that high lofted spot, they get to circle around looking for prey on the ground that they want to go and obviously eat. As I watch these birds, he says, I think of a mystery. I too seek thermals. The Spirit lifts, gives vision, direction, and power, and ministry is riding on the free winds of the Spirit that lift us up to heights we cannot climb on our own. We can't stay in the air very long on our own strength, but we can with thermals. Our soul wings are large that we might catch the Holy Spirit. So I'm wondering if you ride those thermals. I'm wondering if you are reliant upon the Spirit. You know, we're privileged people. In David's era, the Spirit came and went on people very rapidly. Not everybody had the Spirit upon them. In fact, it was just a very select group of people. With our Lord Jesus who has come, one of the greatest things He has accomplished is he said, when I leave, I'm going to leave you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will come to walk alongside you, comforting you along the way, and he says he's got a job. He's going to lead you into all truth. Are you making a key decision? God says, I'm giving you the best resource I can. I've given you the Holy Spirit to guide you in some of those, well, all of the decisions of your life, but especially those ones that you're really anguished about. And so we are left in a completely different state in which David was in. David had the benefit of the Spirit, but I guess I'm arguing, so do we. The Spirit is better than any human title. So again, title versus Spirit. I'd rather have Spirit than title. I'd rather have spirit than the title president. I'd rather have spirit than the title teacher. I'd rather have spirit than the title of CEO or PhD or anything else you want to put in the alphabet because the spirit is superior in all of those ways. God is guiding David by the spirit, but guess what? He's also wanting to guide you by the spirit. So what are we going to do with this today? Obviously, this is a valuable because God's making decisions all the time, and he's the superior decision maker. He's better at that than we are. God's decision making is on display in this passage, and it's pointing towards David, his choice. And so he moves everything else around him in the right trajectory in order to get David on point here. If you're making a significant decision, and chances are good you're making 70 of them today, some of them are as simple as about what's for lunch. All right, so, you know, we'll kind of, you're going to make that one. But, I, you know, I'm concerned about the ones that's like, you know, who are you going to marry or uh, where are you going to go to school or are you going to buy that home or are you going to take that job? I'm worried about the big ones. And if you're making those kinds of decisions, how would you go about doing that in light of this passage? Well, number one, you're going to listen to God's word. You're going to listen to what God says. And you don't go against that. You, in fact, you actively seek out. Is there something that God is telling me about this business I want to buy? Or is there something God's telling me about this relationship that I'm in the midst of? Let me give you an example of that. You know that God speaks in the scriptures about marriage and saying, I want people to be equally yoked. What does that mean? It means that they both have 
the same loyalty, the same faith, the same desire to serve God. And you know, sometimes we're tempted to say, but you know, he's such a great guy. He loves me, you know, he loves me. He'll, he'll do what's right. And man, I've heard so many stories of ladies and men who made that decision and man, they learn to regret it because tough times come and they're not on the same page and they're not able to work things out because they're not, well, they're not playing from the same sheet of music. And so one of the things we'd do is we'd say, God, do you have something to say about the decision I'm ready to make? Is there something in your scriptures automatically that I need to hear? And if there is, let me be ready to obey you in the midst of that. And so that's number one. Whether you're making a decision to buy a business again or some kind of investment or whatever, you're asking, Lord, is there some, is there some principles in the scripture that I need to heed? Second thing is that you would pray. God is going to inhabit your decisions, and God is offering to advise you and to walk alongside you as you seek what it is that he wants. And so prayer is this important decision that you're going to make, or action you're going to have, because you want to know God's will. And so you're going to pray in order to understand what it is he wants. Maybe you're even going to invite other people to pray around you. You're going to look at the scriptures, you're going to pray. And your decisions are going to be better as a result of that. God wishes to guide us. He's the best decision maker. Let's rely upon him. Father, for the decisions that we are making as your people, we're asking that you would help us through your scriptures, through, uh, through, through prayer, through people around us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And we seek to be yours. We pray in Christ's name.